This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hannibal and American Gods creator Brian Fuller has a conversation with New York Magazine and Vulture TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz, discussing notable bloody scenes that inspired him over his career. Take a listen to the American Gods, Brian Fuller Gets Bloody, over at the Vulture Festival. Alfred was chasing serial killers and uh, horror films. That's uh, a movie I would like to see. It would would be an interesting movie because it's, it's, uh, the guy has never been caught. They thought it was the Green River Killer because we were Eastern Washington and they thought it was connected to what was happening on Western Washington. And everybody in the town knows who did it, but there was not enough proof. So like two of the victims, actually three victims on one night, uh, two of them were two young women, roughly about my age at that time. Uh, And this was a little bit later, so I think I was around 10 or 11. And they were on their way to the grocery store, which had to pass the Civic Theater. Mm -hmm. So uh, they never made it home. And there's a guy who built props for the Civic Theater, including sharp weapons. So he would brag by throwing up watermelons and cutting them in half with a blade. Uh, and everybody was thinking, like, boy, you could do that to a person. And, and so what they think happened, they kind of pinned it on a uh, janitor at the Civic Theater. And what they believe happened is that these two girls were walking by the Civic Theater, got lured in by the killer, then the janitor showed up, interrupted them, was also murdered, and then he disposed of the three bodies. And this was all, you know, local lore. Uh-huh. And so there were a lot of, there was a lot of murders in the Lewis Clark Valley. And I went home a couple of years ago and I put my mom in the car and I was like, let's drive around to every place you know there's a murder. <laughs> because there were things that I would remember that she did and she was game. And we like drove to abandoned apartments. She was like, yeah, a lady was strangled in there. And there was a lot of stranglings in the 70s. And there was some there were a lot of stranglings in the 70s. The 70s, yeah. like people don't understand how violent the 70s were. I don't think, you know, like even if you watch movies from the 70s, they, like it comes from somewhere, but even that, like compared to now, if you look at like how crime rates have declined since the early 90s, it's generally a much safer world that we live in in the United States oh, yeah. than when we were growing up. Oh yeah. That was like, you know, if you left, if you, they're, they're, urban legends were not really legends. Yeah, it was, it was interesting growing up in the 70s and 80s and seeing the loss of innocence because we used to go trick-or-treating and have no adult supervision and doors were unlocked and then that all changed yeah it did. and the movies kept the movies kept pace with it television kept pace with it I yeah. think. and uh, there were so many movies that were being made that were thought of as underground but it kind of broke through in the mainstream and I think some of it was cable Yes. You know, giving things a second chance. Video, I think, in the 80s probably had something to do with that. Oh, yeah, big birth. But movies like, uh, were you one of these people who would discover movies and then tell your friends about them, or were you one of the people who had to be told, you got to see this? No, I sought them out, uh, yeah. because I I read Fangoria Magazine and set up Fantastic and Starlog, so I was aware of everything that was coming out and that was likely not to come out in a small town. So I was... I often had read a novelization 
purchased the soundtrack and read many articles and many magazines before even seeing a movie. That was the case for me as well, and in fact, I didn't see the original Alien until a full year after it came out, but I read the H.R. Giger, uh, no, I'm sorry, the Mobius uh, graphic novel. Right. You remember that? I, I remember that, and I remember the photo novel that was at the yes. grocery store. So every still was captured on this photo novel. And, I and you know what these are? These are, they have like word balloons coming out of the mouths of photographed actors. It's very strange. And they're like, do a search for photo novel. You can find great photo novels that have every frame reproduced. And I sat in the grocery store every time I went to the grocery store and looked at the uh, alien photo novel, which I then would hide to make sure that no one bought it. So <laughs> I did that too. I did that too. This is really weird. Yes, I did that. I hid that alien book. I read that book like probably two or three times a week at the same uh, department store that had the books. That had a bookstore, a book section. And they released a, uh, an oversized one recently. An oversized version. An of oversized that? of the Mobius illustrated really? alien. Oh, I yeah. Get that. I like that there were, at a time, uh, really, I think they stopped doing this in the early 90s because we all came to our senses, but there was a time when they would actually sell merchandise for R-rated movies yeah. that kids couldn't get in to see. They were selling, the there was like the alien toy with the- It was an 18-inch Kenner alien toy with adjustable inner jaws, right. and it was- Was there a John Hurt with a thing that came- There is now, because they made one last year, mm. but they, there were only like three alien products that came out for that film, one was the 18-inch uh, Alien, and they had subsequent three and three-quarter-inch figures planned that were abandoned, and then Don Post did a mask, and Don Post did a face hugger. Oh, okay. <laughs> did you ever have the uh, traded cards, the Alien bubblegum cards? I have them now. <laughs> <laughs> like they're, they're, they're in my office. Those were great. You know, we have a, we have a clip from Alien. Let's, uh, let's all watch it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> had something to do with movies. And my, I was taking an experimental psychology class where you had to do an experiment. And my experiment was, do you get more out of seeing a movie if you understand the psychological subtext or if you're just enjoying it as a popcorn thriller? And so this was the, the case study. And uh, there's so much symbolism in the movie Alien and such fantastic production design that having you know, sat with Ridley Scott and talked to him about this, most of which was like completely not intentional. It was all what H.R. Giger was doing. Mm -hmm. And so the experiment was essentially closed room thriller, people get knocked off one by one, it's chilling and horrific, or you have a mother the computer that is turning on its children for a penis-headed monster that is consuming, so it was about the dissolution of the family unit and how uh, mothers can betray children for greater purposes and what it is to be a part of a family that's falling apart. Right. Vagina-shaped doorways, uh, fallopian tube spaceships, like, like everything is about creation gone wrong in a really interesting way. And rape and pregnancy yep. and everything. All of it. So it was all, it was incest. And so there are all these fantastic issues that are mainly due to the very elaborate production design. And that was the thing that uh, when I turned in that experiment got an A. Um, <laughs> and my, 
instructor says, you don't belong here, you need to go to film school. And the next uh, student teacher meeting, uh, I sat down and he had pamphlets for film schools. And he says, You're, you, I am not allowing you to stay here. Who was that, who was that teacher? Hepburn. Jim Hepburn. Jim Hepburn. How did, uh, what was the result of your study? What did you find? The, the study that you were doing? Uh, it's, it, it depends on what you're bringing into it. So uh, it was pretty even. Some people don't want to think about it, and some people do. Mm -hmm. What do you think you took away from Alien, from and just the whole kind of Alien ethos in your own work? Well, there, it's, it's, it's very psychological. It's very Freudian. Having something inside you that will destroy you is something that every human being should fear at some point in their life, whether to trust their own nature and that being perverted into a metaphor of something that is outside of you that is able to use you as a host to do terrible things can be a metaphor for alcoholism or drug abuse or any kind of uh, substance issue that you might be dealing with, but it's also really interesting as somebody who was raised Catholic and has spent a lot of time in church and, and reading about uh, all the things that the devil does to you. And so there, there is so much going on in this film that is very deceptive as a thriller because it's mumbling as art and it's so brilliantly cast with these wonderful character actors who give their roles such specificity that when you see the current Alien movies, you're like, I don't even know that guy's face. Like, right. he just showed up to die. Yeah. Um, whereas this film, you're invested in all of these people because it's a small group, they band together, and as the Alien films get bigger, particularly the latest one, there's just dozens of people where I'm like, where did that guy go, and who's that guy? Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. So, did you see the new one? Yeah. Dan, did you like it? No. No? <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. I, um, I think the last two movies have had too many similarities with Bad Friday the 13th sequels and not enough similarities with good alien movies. Interesting. You mean, you're talking about the... Uh, you know, here's Snakey, Snakey, Snakey from, from that Prometheus. Was yeah, yeah. That guy's dumb. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, so, I sort of, I, I defend these things as night, as nightmare movies. As, you know, like where you're, you know, you're, you, when you, in a nightmare, you're not doing things that are logical. You're doing things like going to work naked, you know, or like right. trying to leave and leave a meeting that you don't want to be in by like opening a window and crawling out on the face of a skyscraper. I mean, it's like stupid. Like no one would ever do that, but in a nightmare. You do that, yeah. And like the end of Prometheus no. when they're running away from the spaceship. Everybody always says like, "Why doesn't she just run this way?" It's like because it's a nightmare. Yeah, that that logic uh, I think helps a lot of movies. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, for me, uh, you know, one of the, one of my frustrations with both Prometheus and Alien Covenant was that they are so masterfully executed uh, on a technical level and gorgeously composed and produced and yet you have really smart characters doing really stupid things and that's that's hard for me to maintain my involvement in the reality that they're creating right the, the, the shower you can defend the shower scene at the end of the covenant oh god no yeah. <laughs> no, no, no totally but the, the reaction of the audience to that scene made it worth it 
Really? You made it worth it. Yeah, because if you're laughing, it's like, oh, of course. You're not course. supposed to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not supposed to be laughing. Oh, I totally was. Actually, you know, it wasn't. It's not. It's a question of more the timing, of like the the time period in which it was made, because. You know, anything that's not CGI, people laugh at it now. But right. when you watch this clip, it is still scary up until the point when that alien comes out. And he's pretty clearly, you know, a, a skinless Kermit the Frog. I mean, he's like a little Muppet. But he's, he's, kind of, he's made of real tissue. They yes, the, yes, like he they, is. They used real animal parts. And yeah, the thing that's yeah. interesting, has anybody seen Alien Covenant yet? No. So you see this chest burster and how disturbing and snake-like it is. And then the other chestburster in, in Alien Covenant is just him like standing up. Like the sophistication of the storytellers was not that far away from what I was enjoying in at that period of my life. Like, now, now, what is it about? There are some uh, horror films, not just of you know our sort of childhood era, but generally that are stupid. They're just oh, yeah. they're just dumb, and yet also creepy. Yeah. Also creepy. It probably has to do with that nightmare aesthetic where you're, where everything is getting on a subconscious level. And, you know, there are things like, uh, for instance, you know, whether it's Day of the Animals. Mm -hmm. uh, has anybody seen Day of the Animals, Susan George? Uh, it's basically the animals don't like you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so a bunch of snakes are going to get into your car and surprise you when you get in and try to get away. Food of the Gods with Marjo, of the gods. With Marjo Gortner, yeah. former child evangelist Marjo Gortner. And isn't he a present day evangelist? I believe he is. Yeah, yeah. he's still evangelating. And then there was one, <laughs> and then there was, uh, one, one with uh, William Shatner, was it like the giant spider? Uh, Kingdom of the Spiders. Kingdom of the Spiders, I was thinking of a different spider movie. And that's the one where the woman, that had a woman who was panicking because the spiders were in her room and one was on her hand, so she decided to shoot it off. <laughs> so she's, she's got uh, problem solving. There was, a, there was a stretch of a good, really eight to ten year stretch where every year there were three or four movies that wanted to be Jaws. Oh yeah. There was there was the Grizzly. I remember Grizzly. I remember also one of the the uh, the Boogeyman or not the Boogeyman, the Sasquatch documentary. That there was a Sasquatch documentary and like it was like. 7980, and I remember the music because it would start with the strings on the yeah. commercial, and I would have to plug my ears and go fetal because the, all I remember is that there was a woman like enjoying television, and Sasquatch comes through the window behind her, and that's the end of the trailer. So uh, I could not watch TV with my back to a plate glass window. <laughs> I wanted to show a clip from a, a movie that you uh, cited as one of your favorites, uh, and we'll just uh, throw this up cold. Uh, this is from a movie called The Car. Guess what's about? <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, the devil is driving the car, and it just chose a car uh, to, to drive around. It's actually, I, I got it wrong. I said it was like Jaws, but with a car, but it's really more Exorcist with a car. Or, or oh, Exorcist, Jaws with a car. Jaws and Exorcist with a car. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, and it's, it's, it's hilarious because there's a whole sequence at the beginning, or in the middle of it, where the children who are on a, uh, a, a, a school trip have to take refuge in a cemetery because it's hollow ground and the car keeps on trying to like spook them out and right over here and they can't go on. And, and Kim Richards is in that too. Yeah. Yeah. He's in everything. 
as a child. Richard uh, escaped from uh, to Witch Mountain and yes. the car. Uh, so anyway, this was very upsetting as a child because that woman was the teacher who told the car off, and then the car came to get her. Uh, so it was always like, oh, don't stand up because they'll get you in the end, and that was yeah. sort of, uh, terrifying. But it's a stupid movie, but it's got fantastic sequences, and James Brolin's great. There was a TV movie that was a ripoff of the car. Like, how low rent can you get? <laughs> Is it, it the, the, the Cars at Eight Paris? No, it was called Death Car on the Freeway. <laughs> yes, they added more words. <laughs> Same movie. Yes. Yeah, the, the, there was a lot of those exploitation films uh, in the 70s and 80s. They kind of curved out by the mid-80s because the proliferation of the video market was taking things in a different direction, and we were yeah. also much more stock and slash in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, you know, this, one has a, this one has that thing that we were talking about earlier, that why don't they just do X? Or just like, you know, go into the woods or something. Right. You know, like if you want to get away from the car. It's like that movie uh, from the same time, Orca. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, but of course, you know, it's one of those things where you just have to accept, well, he's a fisherman. You know, he's a, he's not really a sea, he's a, he's a, he's a sailing man. But it's like, if you really wanted to get away from the vengeful killer whale, just move to Iowa. Yeah. You know, it's like, unless you get, then you get like, you know, the killer whale is on a bus, it's like Midnight Cowboy. And he's got a little, you know, suitcase with stickers on it. It's like, when, when do we get to Iowa? It's like, relax, whale. It's the Orca and Moe's Tavern that they were uh, hiding from. Yeah, um, yeah, that movie was hilarious because uh, it was Bo Derek and Richard Harris. Harris. Yes. And they are on a, uh, their house, of course, is on the water, and then Orca just knocks the things, the, the, uh, uh, support, the uh, support beams, yeah. and then Bo Derek slides into its mouth and it bites off her leg. <laughs> and um, that one's hard to watch. That one is not nearly as enjoyable as the car, so you have to choose, don't yes. choose Orca. Yes, yes. It's it, kind of joyless. Cronenberg. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I've always thought that, I've always thought Cronenberg has to be an influence on you. Massive, right? massive. Yeah. And talk, I think, talk about Cronenberg a little bit. Well, Cronenberg was a big influence on Hannibal with the body dysmorphia and uh, the perversion of what's going on uh, with your body betraying you at any given moment. And Alien is very Cronenbergian in and of itself because it's it's body betrayal and so. Whether you're looking at The Brood, has everybody seen The Brood? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of my favorites of his films. And for those who don't know, The Brood is about uh, a corrupt psychiatrist played by Oliver Reed who uh, is treating his patients to manifest their interior pain exterior. So you initially see some men with boils on their faces because they're dealing with their rage. But one woman is churning out rage babies that go and do her bidding. So if she's pissed off at you, she'll just squeeze out a puppy and it'll come kill you. Like it kills her step-parents and and it's all about getting the child back. But that was a fantastic extrapolation of what your body can do with the right motivation. There's something about the way that effects are done analog that makes them even when they're dated, they're still creepy. Like the alien that we just watched is one example of that. But a lot of those Cronenbergian uh, creatures and makeup effects, like Videodrome with the uh, right. VHS, yeah, 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 yeah. and uh, the fly, 
Oh, again, an audible gasp. It's, it's an amazing movie. It's a beautiful movie. It is, yeah. It's a love story. Yeah. It's a tragic love story. And an AIDS allegory. <laughs> yes, and yeah, and uh, so many other things besides. Are we ever going to see a, a tragic uh, love story uh, with uh, Will and uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I pitched you my season four. So. Yeah, well, could, could you repeat? For those who haven't heard about this, maybe you want to. Um, Share what, it again, your hypothetical season four of Hannibal. I'm not sure how much I want to say because I want to do it. It's a, I would say if we're doing the, the pitch from the player, it would be Inception meets Angel Love. Oh! <laughs> No, it's not. I may have given you more detail. <laughs> <laughs> so if uh, you know, you know, there's going to be this day of uh, 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 targeted harassment of streaming services by Hannibal fans. <laughs> it's coming. Yes, yes. a few months. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Have you? Do you? Uh, do you have any um, horror films, horror filmmakers of recent vintage that you are fond of? Uh, quite a few. I think, um, you know, I love The Witch. I love The Witch. And really, like, a wonderful coming-of-age story. Like, afterwards, I was like, fuck those Christian, you know, uh, the, the, the whole patriarchy. Because I felt like The Witch was a, a beautiful response to uh, oppressive Christian patriarchy. It's like, okay, if you want to oppress me, I'm just going to fucking worship the devil. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see uh, uh, the Babadook? I did. I thought yeah. it was amazing, and I thought that it, uh, you know, it was such. A, I even got the Babadook pop-up book. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it was one of the films like that are so interesting because they're taking something and blurring the lines between is just just a mother who can't deal with a a, a complicated child, and, or is there a monster? And yes. That was that was so beautifully in that film. Did you see there was another movie that was sort of similar to that that came out before, which is called Mama. Oh, yes. Yeah. yes. I've only seen parts of Mama. Mama, I highly recommend uh, giving Mama a, a nice, e you know, a nice evening viewing. Because I went to see that. I took my teenage, then teenage daughter. We were going to go see something else. It was sold out. It's like, well, what else is starting on the same time? Mama, we'll go see that. Scared the shit out of us. It was great, and it's one of those things where uh, they do a lot with suggestion. They do a lot with suggestion. Like you see, like kids like laughing and yay, they're like jumping on the bed, and you see like a shadow on a wall of like some tentacles. <laughs> you know, it's really a, yeah, kind of creeping myself out just describing. I've got to see it. It's good. Uh, and uh, Hong Kong and Japan have done quite a bit. Yeah, they're. Have you seen Rings? Uh, what you talking about the whole series? No, the. The, the the plural the one that no, just came out no no I haven't is it anybody good? Is it, like, I haven't seen it thumbs yeah. up okay. thumbs down don't watch it okay, okay. Oh, all right yeah no those <laughs> were those were those were uh, uh, there was there was such a huge uh, rush to kind of appropriate aspects of Japanese horror yeah in in, in American films and and uh, what how do you feel how do you feel about the way that Japanese horror mm -hmm. films represent uh, the unreal and the Versus, say, American 
horror movies? Do well, you feel like there's a difference somehow? Well, I think the, the, the big difference is just the cultural history of ghost stories. And Japan has a really specific take on hauntings and a, a quasi-spiritual take as well. Uh, 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 American Gods, I noticed there's a little bit of a lovingly pornographic close-ups of food, but not as much as on Hannibal. Um, there's, I think there's more dick than food. <laughs> Janice Poon will always be there. If if there is food, there is Janice. And uh, but there's like she she only did two episodes for us, Uh, three episodes. Um, And unlike Hannibal, she was there every episode doing something spectacular. Right. Uh, Would there be any? literary property besides uh, American Gods that you would uh, want to adapt? Uh, horror fiction as much as horror film? Yeah, I, you know, I would love to adapt Heath Love. And if you haven't read Heath Love, it's, it's my favorite book. It's a fantastic story of uh, unconventional family. And have you read it? Yeah, yeah, and that was a, that was a big one. Uh, that was a big one in college. Yeah. That was like, what was that, 89 or 90? Yes, something 89. Like and, and I'm also, I'm very excited that the Vampire Chronicles are going to be turned into a TV series. And that's something that, you know, as a fan of those books, there's so, one, one of the wonderful things about the adaptations that are happening now is that that television allows you the real estate to explore stories that movies wouldn't. So, mm-hmm. for instance, in The Vampire Lestat, you, if it were a movie, you wouldn't get his relationship with Nikki, and you wouldn't get his relationship with his mother, and all those those complicated things. You would just skip past that to him being a vampire. So I'm excited that we are living in an, a literary television age where are people watching The Handmaid's Tale? Yeah. I've only seen three episodes, but there hasn't been a false move in them, and I thought it was fantastic. So I, I think this, there's something really exciting about the opportunity for adaptation. Uh, do we? I think we have time for a few questions. If anybody wants to, yes, up front. Um, a question about music in your shows. Yeah. Uh, specifically, like songs. I know that uh, Shirley Manson did a song on American Gods this last episode. Of this next episode. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and that uh, Susie Sue did the finale for Hannibal. You got any other uh, surprises coming up? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, Debbie Harry uh, has reported a brand new disco song uh, for us in the season finale of American Gods. Uh, the Coming to America is Bilquis, uh, so they're played by Yutiti Badaki. She's the one who gobbles up men with her vagina. And uh, so the first 20 minutes of the episode is her uh, in an ancient Babylonian Sex Temple through 1979 Tehran and the fall uh, of, of that regime. And so we were going to use Heart of Glass. And then I, I know uh, Debbie's manager and called him and I was like, do you think she would ever do an original song with us? And he was like, yeah, she's great. And called her and she's like, yeah, I'm into it. And she's touring with Shirley Manson this summer. so. Uh, if you get a chance to see both of them, uh, they're, they're, they're now alumni of American Gods. But it's, it's a great disco song. The track is very Giorgio Moroder, and uh, that 
that's that's the next big surprise. Did uh, Wrightzell do the music for it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and Brian Wrightzell is amazing because he's he's been in so many bands as a musician and brings that pop culture sensibility to his scores, which are so not melodic in the the same way that his song work is. So he's He's so multi-talented. He uses a lot of unconventional instruments, doesn't he? Things that are not even instruments. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a, a sequence in the fifth episode that is animated, and it's uh, a tribe bringing their god across the Bering Strait and uh, having to give up that god and choose another god in order to survive. So that piece, you know, since it was 20,000 years ago, uh, Brian only used instruments that would have been available 20,000 years ago. So it's, it's fantastic. It feels like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with The Creatures, Susie and the Banshees, other band, uh, but it felt like uh, what she does with The Creatures is she goes to, like she'll go to Japan and she'll soak in all their music. She'll go to Hawaii, she'll soak in all the music, Spain, and she'll do albums that are specific to the culture of, those, of that music. And so, if there is a prehistoric Susie album, like I was like, you send this track to Susie and see if she'll do a song to it because it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yes, one more. Uh, I, I, there. Hi, Brian. Hello. Good to see you. Uh, good to see you too. Um, I had a question about um, the way you're using the weather in American Gods because I've noticed, you know, just within the first couple episodes, you know, we have so much like rain, precipitation. Like, what is your your like production choice behind that and like how does it I always like to see like how production kind of works around such extreme weather well we've uh, you know there's a big arc in the season for that storm and Wednesday is a storm god Odin is a is a storm god so it's building up to something oh and did you like the discovery trailer I did I thought it was a lot of fun did you I loved it I thought it was great it's, it's nice to see Michelle Yeoh and and a Sinequa representing in Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> uh, over there. Hi, uh, American Hello. Gods is one of my favorite books, so it's really a joy to watch you adapt it, and the, the changes that you bring to it are spectacular. Uh, one specific question that I had was, so in the book, uh, Bill Quiz is a sex worker specifically, and you made the conscious choice to change that, and she is no longer, and I'm just wondering why. It's, well, you know, part of it was, um, you know, looking at the book in, in strictest adaptation uh, terms, we knew that we wanted to amplify the female roles uh, because it's a television show and uh, we needed more female energy in it. And so we knew that we were going to be expanding Laura, which you'll see in, in the Sunday's episode. It's all about Laura. But we also wanted to expand Bilquis's character. And so we were looking at a television show that would have two uh, prominent female characters, one's a whore and one's a cheater. And we were like, we can't defend that position in this day. So um, next week's, or tomorrow night's episode with uh, Laura Moon was really Michael and I saying, everybody thinks that she's just the woman who died with her husband's best friend's cock in, it, in her mouth and Fidelity as a gay man is, is not as ritualized as it is in the heterosexual world. So 
uh, I was like, so she sucked the guy's dick. Who cares? Uh, and, and Michael was like, no, no, no. Uh, so uh, we kind of wanted to like basically say, here's this full human being, and the dick sucking was just a small part of her personality. I hope you can see past that. So for Bill Quiz, there was a lot of things that were kind of interesting in the in the in the adaptation process because we were looking at her and not wanting to necessarily have her get younger every time she consumes somebody because that says something creepy about age in and of itself. So we just wanted her to kind of have a juge with it, uh, but we we didn't want her to be a sex worker because sex workers are not necessarily providing love, they're providing a distraction for love, and it felt like with the invention of dating apps or cruising apps, uh, that there was an opportunity to blend new gods with old gods and tell an important part of that story. So you'll see when you see more of Bilquis's story what all of that means, and we wanted the app to be a part of modern day worship and how we seek love. The, uh, so in the order, where the one that's coming up is four. It's four, yes. Because this, okay, so I've seen four. Four is the best of the first four. It's really amazing. It's really amazing stuff. I love and, it. And I, wondered, and I wondered, because some of the, you know, you got a lot of very positive reviews, but there were some where I wondered, did they make it all the way to four? Because I think they might have had a different attitude if they had. Because they were like. Well, yeah, but also you you really go into you you really take it you sh you show another side of the story. Yeah, and, and, and it also has a different tone. It's almost like a drama. It's like a domestic drama for a large stretch of it, with you know bursts of surrealistic violence, but still. Yeah, it's well, it's about a woman trying to live a life that she's not fully convinced is all that special, and I think that's something that's deeply relatable. We've all been in places where we're like. Is this what it's all about? Is this why I'm alive? Is this what all the stress is is for? And she's somebody who asks all those questions in a way that is looking for reason to live, and she doesn't get it until she dies. Mm -hmm. uh, way in the back, let's go over to, I don't want to neglect the folks uh, on this side. Okay. Hi, Brian. Oh. Um, so, considering you were a psychology major, and considering Hannibal, and considering Laura's storyline in American Gods, or maybe her sort of backstory, um, what are your thoughts about the medicalization of death, or have they changed, or just anything? Well, I think, you know, there, it's, it's interesting, because I had actually uh, one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. Uh, a couple years ago when I found this service that comes to your home to put your pet to sleep, to put your pet down. And I had a very old kitty who was incontinent and was a pain in the ass and uh, but slept in a pee-pee pad under my arm every night. And every night I'd wake up and I'm like, oh, time to change the pee-pee pad. Um, so I love this cat who was, was uh, wanted to make sure that his death was a dignified, peaceful one. And uh, so the service came in, I got into bed, he curled up right where he was, they gave him a shot, he went to sleep. It was the most beautiful thing that could have happened for this animal's life. And I was so thrilled to be a part of it and see that it had 
had a dignified departure. At the same time as that was happening, my friend Cass, mother was dying of cancer, and it was so humiliating and degrading, and she was in so much pain, and so much uh, hardship was uh, dealt with by the family because they couldn't help their mother legally in any way, shape, or form. And my friend Cass would tell me about these these moments, and I, and I used a bit of it in a, a scene it was like active dying when your, your body is ready to die, but it has so much adrenaline. And she was describing her mother hopping out of the, the bed with all the IVs tied towards running in circles, getting tangled up because she was in a panic and in a state. And it just seemed really imbalanced that I could give my cat a dignified death and my friend Cass couldn't give her mother a dignified death. So I think where we are now, or where we're getting to in some states, where it is helpful to have people have a dignified death when they're ready to die and not able to have a, a life that is, is not in chronic pain or other issues that they may be experiencing, I feel like we're behind and uh, you know, I think Oregon has it. California is talking about getting that secured. Uh, Washington is trying to get that done. And uh, the thing that I remembered most when they passed the law in Oregon was reading on a Facebook post from somebody who I have since blocked because they're crazy. Uh, <laughs> uh, was uh, saying that this was so against God's will and that just think of how this is going to be perverted for suicides and it was all this reactionary bullshit that had nothing to do with human dignity and I think we're all, not all of us are going to have a dignified death uh, but we should endeavor to put laws in place where by the time that everybody in this room is checking out, we have that option. That was a HeadGum Podcast.